Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 9th, 2022. And of course, all the world is talking about today is the get is the death of the British Queen Elizabeth II. Um, every headline is dominated by news of the death of, uh, of the Queen of England and the ascent to the throne of what is now the, the King of England, who is now known as Charles III. It's rather uh, awkward, new idea, and we'll have to get used to it. Uh, Guardian, of course, dominates the British newspaper, but the American newspapers are jumping into, even though uh, America was founded on a hostility to the idea of monarchy. Uh, New York Times leads with it. Uh, Wall Street Journal, one of the Murdoch newspapers, leads to it, talks about a, a rain dawn as Britain mourns its queen. Uh, even the Washington Post has uh, forgotten them about Donald Trump for a few minutes and talks about Britain mourning a life of duty and service. It's a very curious thing. We're all mourning a woman we didn't know, a woman who is about as profoundly distant in cultural geographic terms as imaginable. Uh, Polly Toynbee of The Guardian, no great fan of the royal family, talk about in grieving for the queen, we also mourn the losses in our own lives. And I wonder whether our um obsession perhaps with the death of the queen and the british royal family is bound up um in our lack of belonging our idea that we don't have a belonging in the contemporary world and the queen god bless her we didn't know her perhaps she didn't know herself but she did belong she belonged to an institution she belonged to a way of life a way of commitment a life of duty and service. One person who's been given a lot of thought to the idea of belonging is my guest today, Kim Samuel, a Canadian uh, academic, social activist. Um, she writes and thinks about the right to belong for Kim Samuel. Uh, she, for the last two decades, has been focused on a vision of human connection and rootedness I'm not sure if she's a monarchist, but perhaps some of the ideas that she's been thinking about touch on the royal family. And uh, Kim has a new book out. It's called, appropriately enough, On Belonging, Finding Connection in an Age of Isolation. Kim is joining us, appropriate enough, perhaps, in our, iso uh, in our age of isolation from a hotel in New York City. Kim, uh, uh, I don't really want to talk about the death of the Queen herself, but is there any truth, do you think, in this obsession we have collectively with the British royal family and this crisis of belonging that you've spent so much time thinking and writing about? First, to say thank you. Thank you very much for having me around today. I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about a lot about this since the the death of the queen yesterday and seeing such an outpouring from not only the UK and not only the 
Commonwealth, but really all around. And to your your point, one of the articles that you were showing just now, that we we can feel a loss uh, a loss too the losses in in our own lives. Well, a couple of points on that. The first the first is really that I thought about the losses in my own life, uh, my 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 father, my sister, my my mother. Uh, all uh, in the end due to different forms of of cancer but it was the the first of those my father who uh, had had a, a brain injury a very serious brain injury injury in 1997 and was in a coma for 3 months and woke up and the better he got paradoxically the harder it was for him because of the presence of of what I still see in my head as a figure sitting alone at the bottom of a well. He had a lot of disabilities when he awoke and he awoke very slowly. But I, I came to see that it wasn't the disabilities, it was the way that people, even well-meaning friends were treating him because of the disabilities. And I started to look at people living in poverty that were for, forced migrants or people because of their ethnicity or their uh, their idea, any number of identities that they had were made to feel that they were the other or less than in some way. And it isn't the thing, if you will. It's the way that, that uh, so I definitely was thinking about the losses in my life yes, uh, yesterday and, uh, and also mourning the loss of, of the queen. When we talk about the, the connection, you asked the question about what's that connection with belonging? Well, belonging to a commonwealth as I do, uh, I, uh, I feel a sense of belonging to not only to my own country, but to a big group of countries and a lot of, now with that, it means that we we also need to uh, consider, and there's been a lot of articles about it too, which you've probably seen, the, the history of colonialism uh, in there and, uh, and reparations and so forth. But right now, what I'm really focusing on of, uh, of a, really, a really great uh, woman and what I see now as a really great, great queen, and she knew her belonging from... Uh, from, I guess, as soon as she was building memories in her life, although she wasn't originally slated to be, to be the, the she knew her belonging because she had a, a connection with uh, people, with place, with power, with purpose. And to me, those are all the dimensions of belonging. And at the same time, you know, when I look at, at her life and, and the life of her uh, eldest child, and now King Charles III, I wonder how much isolation they might uh, have felt and he may have uh, be feeling now about being designated in such a high place with such high expectations and maybe sometimes feeling uh, cut off. I I actually, I actually in my book, uh, touch on that with regard to I'm getting used to saying this King Charles III in that uh, in that once uh, 
in conversation uh, with, with him. And I've heard that, but I've heard this with others uh, around him that, that he often, he often looks to see who's at the back of the room because he thinks that might be the most interesting person when so many people are, are around him almost, Oh, I don't know the, the way, the way a football team would be, would be in a huddle. I say that having never played uh, football uh, in, in, uh, in, in any capacity, but it's that feeling of people pressing in on you and how isolating that might feel. And that maybe, maybe he might have more in common with the person at the back of the room that also being seen for who they are. Anyway, just a few thoughts. Uh, Kim, some people might think that the idea of belonging is a, is a kind of luxury uh, that only the wealthy and the privileged, the Charles III's of, of the world can afford. You're Canadian, as you suggested earlier. You're not from the royal family, but you're from the equivalent of a, an aristocratic family in Canada. Your family owns a, a large steel conglomerate. Um, what's your own history of the idea of belonging? Um, have you always sought it? Have you always had an appetite, a longing for belonging? Have you always felt isolated? Well, I, I'd i like to begin with a, with a quotation that we probably all know in some way, either lyrics or from Walt Whitman's poetry. And I think it applies to everyone. I am large. I contain multitudes. So I, I, I'd say for me and, and you, if I may, and anyone listening, that that for most of us, our identity isn't only stemming from uh, the, the, uh, the, the privilege or lack of privilege that we have. Having said that, I acknowledge my my uh, privilege. Uh, yeah, let's. Uh, you, you brought up Dylan, one of my yeah. favorite artists. That song. Um, he has a wonderful line about uh, Indiana Jones and Frank and those British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. Can one simultaneously be Indiana Jones and Frank and those British bad boys, the Rolling Stones, Kim? I'm not sure that he was saying that we could be simultaneously all of them, but I think what's really important here is, is that when someone comes and tells you who they are, you believe them and you respect them for that and vice versa. So in terms of the, uh, that's where I've come, come out on it. In my own, I was a very uh, shy uh, kid I always looked down really when people talked to me. I tried to hard to do really well in school because I thought that if I could do really well in school, then people really wouldn't notice the the other things which I thought missing. I, I remembered at I was a very early reader, by the way, and at about age six I read a a story. Um it was a children's book with pictures, and it was about uh, a little boy and he was trying to figure out who he was. And the only thing that he could, was that he knew he was not a mouse because he had no tail. And, and that was my, uh, that was my feeling about my, myself. And at the same time, you know, I, uh, 
I don't, I don't have a, a blame to put on that. Uh, my brother, my sisters passed on. We all had different experiences in our childhood. Uh, I just, I just happened to be extremely sensitive and it took me until my, oh goodness, probably till my thirties uh, after a, t- after a terrible marriage to understand that I was worthy to in life wasn't simply to, uh, to, to exist and be happy all the time because of what I had, but that maybe I could learn from the way that I, I'd felt a lot and that no one could see, except that my work is now and, and for the past 20 years and counting focused uh, a lot on groups of people that are isolated all the time. And not only that feeling that I describe as sitting alone at the bottom of a well, but also the uh, lack of agency and lack of choice is really uh, pervasive. And as we see example with the, uh, I won't say aftermath of COVID because we're not really past it, probably never will be, but for the, the crisis of 2020-2021 in particular, that, that groups older people in care homes, people living in poverty, people who uh, had a job, now don't have a job. It's those that are most vulnerable that are almost always more affected when, uh, when something comes along that's really challenging, is disproportionately challenged. First, for the groups of people that were already uh, already challenged. And, and to me, that's a total battle cry as to why we need to uh, all work to see that the people in power, the things that are being researched, the voices that are needing to be heard are not, not mine, even though I wrote a book about it. It's about all the people that I can bring into that book and into my work who, uh, who can most uh, illustrate diversity and belonging and I'm very happy to be a, uh, what I call a passionate messenger of a powerful message. The idea of belonging has been picked up by many powerful people. I've heard Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, for example, talk extensively about it. Uh, So you're not the first or the last. We had Peter Goodman, the author, journalist on the show um, at the beginning of the year, talking about what he calls Davos man, how the billionaires have devoured the world. And he picks on, particularly on um, Benioff, he says he talks a good game when it comes to improving the world, but ultimately he's part of the World Economic Forum class. You're part of that class too, um, Kim. In fact, I I saw a Toronto Life um, mock poll from a few years ago, Canadians going to Davos, you were ranked number 11, two after my old friend Don Tapscott, who's been on this show before. I know Don, yeah. Um, And they joke that your objective in going to Davos was to convince the world that despite the shakiness of the parts of the Canadian economy, her steel empire, I'm not sure if it really is your steel empire, but the steel empire of your family is doing just fine. Um, Do you think that a woman like yourself who leads a, a Davos woman lifestyle from Oxford to Harvard to Toronto to Davos, do you think that you can really write authentically, and I use that word carefully, I'm not a big fan of it, about the idea of belonging? 
Um, is there any contradiction? I think a journalist like Goodman might suggest there is. Well, wow, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. I, uh, I don't know what Davos woman means uh, until I got... Uh, I you got... go to Davos. You're, you're, you're one of the, the regulars there, yeah? Well, you sure. Sure. Um, I started going to Davos thing that was uh, well well back in the last century called uh, a group of young uh, global leaders of tomorrow now young global leaders and it was because of um, environmental uh, work that I was doing I uh, I go there because I get to learn a lot really every year frankly uh, and my family business CEO would be the first to tell you that probably he should be going there and, uh, and in the past, when my dad was alive, he referred to Davos as this highfalutin stuff. And, uh, and so it can be, if you want to go, uh, then you go. I, I don't have, I'm a small businessman and I, I go because I get to learn. I, I really get to learn a lot. Um, and I know that uh, that might, may sound, well, why can't everyone go? Well, I don't have the answer to that. But I can also live that life that you that you say my life is a quiet life. I spend a lot of time uh, in the in the field. I spend uh, a lot of time uh, just quietly writing and teaching is my favorite thing to do. But I'm going to come back to the general question, not the not the presumptive one, and that is that I. Uh, I may or may not have a right to talk about belonging. Well, look, I think every one of us has not only a right to talk about belonging, but also a, uh, a right to belong. And that's what I, I make a, a case for in, uh, in my book, which is that by simple virtue of the fact that we are born, we have a birthright of belonging. Well, that all sounds good and pretty, I realize. But then let's ask someone whose birth was never registered if they feel like they belong or someone who can never go to school, that they feel like they're someone that's experiencing food insecurity, meaning really hungry, starving. Do they feel like they belong? And I, I take a, an approach that's human rights based, but really based in, uh, in communities taking charge. So I think I know where you're coming from. I don't feel it's going to be very useful for me to defend how I was born or live, I can tell you, I miss my parents every day. And, and I'm so proud of them. And I'm proud of my sister who's gone. And, and I'm like anyone who's lost members in their family and miss them a lot. I, I feel that the best thing that something that doesn't belong to me, it doesn't belong to any of the other uh, people that you're talking uh, about. It's as it's perennial, it's as old as our existence that I know of the tendency to other people to make somebody less than to build yourself up and, and uh it's not uh it's not about me owning this it's me i hope about making sure that it's something that's in our consciousness to help to have it be in the zeitgeist to honor which my book is full of people whose whose stories are true really uh in, incredible and what they've had is challenges and how they've They've used their resilience and their leadership to uh, to help a, a lot of uh, other people. 
in finding their belonging and making sure it's upheld in the law. And that comes back to the, the messenger. But I also did my homework and my research. Uh, this wasn't uh, wasn't meant to be an effort just to to join uh, to join a chorus. Kim, uh, you, you brought up the example of someone who's extremely hungry, perhaps starving, uh, and you asked them about belonging. Um, not you, but one would ask them about belonging and finding collection, uh, connection in an age of isolation and that they might demand the right to belong. My guess is if someone's really hungry and starving or their kids are starving or they're homeless, belonging is not the first thing that they're going to want. They want the right to food the right to shelter. Uh, so right. I don't see why or how most people really care about belonging. Sure, it's it, it seems to me a bit of a luxury. It's the kind of thing that people like you and I can afford. But most people, when they're concerned about their next meal uh, or their next job, uh, simply don't have the time or the energy or the luxury to think about. Well, I think the word that we want to take out here, at least I would, is the word luxury. So if we take that word out, we're left with belonging. I think you're right. When I, I've done a lot of work, field work, had been able to travel extensively, and uh, it's not belonging in, in the English language or equivalent of other languages that people talk about. But I also, I also, if people are hungry or out of work or experiencing um, abuse in the home, it's not about, it's, it's not only about that thing, and that thing is horrible. It's also, to me, a deaf lack of belonging, a lack of, a lack of agency, a lack of, and that if we, if we, uh, if we can lift this up and make it meaningful, it could be helpful. Uh, recently, um, a, a man by the name of Ken Roth, he's very recently uh, retired, director of the uh, international NGO Human Rights Watch. And I had an opportunity in, uh, gosh, uh, two, uh, 2018 to speak to him about this idea of a right to belong. And I said, what, what do you think? And and that he said, the first thing is, do not think about this in terms of bringing on a new uh, human right. There's no appetite for that. We've now been, uh, parenthetically, a decade in at the, the UN trying to, uh, trying to get a, a, a declaration on the rights of older people. I don't know how that could be so challenging. He said, look at the right to belong as a way to lift up neglected rights. And I said, well, well, like which one, for example? And he said, you pick any of them. And that that's where the the way that I look at this was was uh, was born. So you're right. People do not have this luxury to think about belonging in the way that you say, I guess, I guess maybe that's maybe that's my job. And 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 I'm OK if a million other people are doing it, frankly, I think a lot more more people are working at it. All, all of the community about in the book are people that are doing just that. 
but it's not a matter of this is the, you know this is the flavor of the week or this is the flavor of the month and it's not about that to me it's it's really fundamental and if someone's right of belonging this birthright of belonging is denied or not upheld i believe that you're going to see uh, a real uh, a real uptick in um, in the huge challenges facing us today you talk a lot about the right to belong and in fact you suggest that i think that um that the un needs to pass an equivalent right to belong alongside its universal declaration of human rights that of course uh, eleanor roosevelt uh, eleanor roosevelt was so instrumental in in founding uh, that was a long time ago, Kim, uh, when these international institutions and organizations seem to have a little bit more credibility, uh, organizations like the UN. Um, should we still place faith in those kinds of institutions? Uh, uh, I mean, I know you think that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights has had an effect, perhaps it has, but there's still around the world an enormous disrespect for human rights. It doesn't seem as if the UN declaration has made any difference on that. Just look at Ukraine or Russia or China. We did a show on China yesterday. So what difference would it make? For example, if the UN did indeed pass uh, a universal declaration of belonging, what difference would it make to the world? I... I don't think it would make much difference to the world unless we had much stronger power and empowerment at the level of, of communities. I also, though, don't think it's wise. But then to... we wouldn't need it. You're right. Then we wouldn't need it. But in the meanwhile, uh, I'm not. Actually, you began uh, talking about the the monarchy, yeah, and and that um, that's an example of, of an institution that, in order to be effective, needs to change a great a great deal and change with the times. I think that we're seeing with the UN, uh, it's it's not only what are what's in there. I mean, a lot of things is uh, created uh, after World War II, left out left out indigenous peoples, left out uh, a lot of the, the voices. The, where were the voices uh, speaking from the, uh, from the global south more? And when we see the kinds of challenges we have today, we could ask, what is our government doing? Is valuable? I, I, I believe that unless we have something to replace with, replace it with that is a body that at least brings a lot of people together for discourse then then we shouldn't we shouldn't give it up at the same time i'm i'm really really arguing the uh the strength of communities of of uh, governance systems to be shifted out of traditional vertically integrated uh centers of power uh cities for example we see in the the last decade uh, particularly around change cities uh, coming up to the the forefront uh, not waiting for the state uh, to act so I think it's really a combination but but underlying all of it is who's in the conversation in the first place and I think that we really have to get out of people in uh, in, in positions and you probably 
but from the way you describe me, probably put me there and I'm okay with it is, is that, you know, you're saying kind of, what does she know about it? Well, well, I don't know that I have a right to know more or a right to know less than anybody else. But, but I, I figure my, my main job is to, is to bring a lot of people together in order to, uh, to have less of an adversarial or competitive relationship and to, uh, to figure out, figure out what the answers are and, and to kind of hold up that circle that I don't own, that I don't, don't I didn't ever create, but hold that whose uh, place that is to come in. I'm, I'm really uh, quite happy to be a messenger, but you know, I don't think there's, you're saying a lot of people are writing about this and, and I'm, uh, I'm in, in, in New York city right now, after I was sick with COVID and had pneumonia, I came to New York because it was the quickest place that I could get some physical therapy for my lungs. And I walked and I walked and I walked for about a month. In, and in addition to getting medical care, and I kept seeing the word belonging everywhere, including on all kinds of houses of worship for all kinds of uh, faiths and traditions. And all those places were closed. And so it would be something about you belong or so on. And I thought there, you know, there's an irony that we can't uh, that we can't even go in. The word belonging is everywhere. Um, I think it it's down to us to to decide uh, what it what it means and how we value it. I uh, I tend to think that this is an ancient uh, an ancient story. I'm just uh, I'm just one of the uh, one of the the people holding a candle and and wanting to start a peaceful revolution about it every day. I, I think you're right, um, Kim. It is indeed an ancient story, an ancient debate about whether whether we can combine communities of belonging with our current globalized economic system. You mentioned climate change. We've had a number of debates on this show about whether or not we can confront climate change with our current economic system of capitalism. George Monbiot was on the show, for example. Yeah, uh, he has a new book out, Regenesis, Fighting the World Without Devouring the Planet. He, I think, is thinking in a post-capitalist way. Uh, you know, I'm not sure what your position is on capitalism. On the one hand, you're associated with your family's company, one of the more successful capitalist companies in Canada, which as it happens is an energy and water, uh, oil and gas company. So it certainly has some impact on the environment. But do you think that we can belong in the 21st century, Kim, uh, in our current capitalist economic system? Uh, for, first to correct, uh, if you don't mind, my, my family business is uh, is actually uh, in the, uh, we don't make the steel, we make it in, in metals into things and and the, by two uh, ancestors of mine leaving the UK whose father told them, uh, you better make good quickly or come home. And uh, the business was started in 1855. And uh, I'm, I'm proud of that history. I, I wanna come back to whatever system it is whether uh, it's, I think it's, uh, does George write, he writes about what comes after uh, capitalism. And I, I know George and think highly, highly of him. I don't think it's about, uh, it's about capitalism or not capitalism. It's how's it being done? What's, what's this? What, 
what does the business consider its responsibility to uh, its uh, employees, their families, the communities where they do business? Are they just doing this as sort of PR, uh, making, you know, sponsoring, making things look good, or is this really of the business? So I'm, I'm not, uh, I guess if I was asked in my pro-capitalism or anti-capitalism, I would, uh, I would come down on the pro side, but not because of being part of a, a business, but because I, I feel that the private sector is, is a very important engine, and particularly those businesses that are called uh, social businesses, social entrepreneurship. And I, uh, I think that it, it's, uh, in terms of the 21st century, I think your question was, was broader. Yeah, not only about uh, the family business that I'm, that I'm uh, part of. Yes, I do. I do. I think it's always been possible. I think what happens is when we kind of kind of take for granted uh, key values, including 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 loaning your resilience to someone else, about not leaving people in victimhood, about knowing sometimes you're the one that is going to need help. If if we if we ignore that, if we don't think about practices in our workplaces. If we don't think about not only inclusion, but inclusion in uh, in a fully part participatory way around a table, if we don't not only have the rules that we need in place, but if they're not practiced properly and with compassion, then uh, then I uh, I'm a lot less hopeful. But I am hopeful. I just know that we we need to kind of wake up, if that makes sense. As you've said, this is ancient. I didn't invent the word or the concept. I just I just think that it comes down to uh, not just uh, talking, but acting more and and listening more and uh, and that business as usual, so to speak, doesn't work now. Yeah, I think it, it's all about maybe not belonging, but talking about belonging. And that's what Kim Samuel's doing in her new book on belonging, finding connection in an age of isolation. She's addressing the elephant in the room, perhaps the biggest question of all in the 21st century. So congratulations, Kim, on being so brave and approaching such a big subject um, in such an interesting and, and open way. Um, congratulations on the book. You've written a lot about this. What else are you reading these days? You mentioned some other books too. What are your other books on your reading table? Well, uh, this is my first book. And to write this book, I read over 300 books. So I've now gone uh, back to the things that have inspired me uh, the most. And they're, uh, one is uh, Von Eschenbach's Parsifal, the night that I, that I really, uh, he's in my book, actually, as a person, that I write about, about the, um, about compassion and about how in any tradition or telling in history, we look at the grail quest usually as, as there's sort of the initiation, the call to it. And then there's the, the slaying dragons and rescuing fair maidens. And then the last part, the last part doesn't get as much attention. And that's the part where all you have to do, seemingly not much, only few of the the knights achieve this is to show compassion for the dying king, sire, what ails thee? 
And and I do think about I go I've been going back to that very recently because my book's about to come out and I'm going to my sources of inspiration is what you just said about really listening. Another um, another is uh, really really anything by Wendell Berry uh, identifies himself first as a farmer uh, and uh, and then as a as a poet and his uh, essay uh, What Are People For which I think is a read that really everyone should have and it brings it down so uh, basically that if we if we see each other listen to each other with a lens of oh you're there you're there i just met you but what do you do you're there then we're really missing out why we're why we're here uh, those are uh, a couple and then uh william blake uh the the first uh well the first poet that i ever read as a young le- uh, reader were the uh, songs of innocence songs of experience and i've often said that those those poems saved my childhood to understand that wherever you have good, there's bad, that we're, we're full of opposites and contradictions. That's really okay. Uh, it helps to understand that things are in the whole so that we don't uh, go off and in inverted commas, try to save the world. We just try to, to do our part to make things a little better.